Hello, and thank you for joining us today for Frost and Sullivan's latest webinar from our Emerging Market Innovation Practice. Today's event is titled Brexit Impact on UK Economy and Industry. My name is Anna, and I oversee Frost and Sullivan's Growth, Innovation, and Leadership Briefings. Before we begin, I'd like to go over a few quick notes. We will have some detailed slides on today's presentation. So there's a full screen feature available in the lower right-hand corner of your webinar player. You can safely share this briefing at any time via social media, email, or blogs. Today's discussion will also be available on demand shortly after we finish. And don't forget to submit your questions throughout the session today. Our presenters are Neha Anna Thomas, Senior Economist, Kevin Kelly, Senior Consultant, Luca Raffelli, Head of Business and Financial Services, and Imajan Sujit, Director of Consulting EIA. With that, I would now like to hand the presentation over to Neha. Thank you, Anna. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this presentation on Brexit and its impact. Um, so on this particular slide that you see in front of you, I'd just like to outline what we have planned for you over the next uh, one hour. So our presentation, we will start off with uh, the Brexit timeline, of course, in terms of what can be expected over the next couple of months. And we will delve into the much-talked-about withdrawal agreement that's come out in the recent days. And we'll move on to examine a couple of Brexit scenarios and analyze the transition period, and then do an analysis of Brexit impact on the UK economy as a whole. And we'll then move on to industry-specific analysis of Brexit and its impact. Very importantly, starting with the automotive industry and then moving on to financial services and finally ending with the healthcare industry. And at the end of the session, we also have a Q&A session. So with that, we get right into it. Moving on to the next slide, which is the timeline slide. So we put this slide together to give you a better idea of what uh, Brexit could look like over the next couple of months and days even, more importantly. So as we know, the Brexit vote was triggered back in June of 2016, and now it's been a little over two years since the vote has taken place. Months and months of negotiations, as we all know, and the last week, last two weeks, more importantly, have been very important in the sense that we've seen a lot of concrete developments coming up with the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration being published. And it was just last Sunday that the EU endorsed this particular political de declaration and withdrawal agreement. Now, just a quick summary of what these two documents entail. The withdrawal agreement focuses on aspects such as citizens' rights, the transition period, the financial settlement, and we'll go into it in the next slide. Now, this is a legally binding document, so no change is expected. The political declaration is a much shorter document and most importantly talks about the future trade relationship between the UK and the EU. This is not a legally binding document at this stage, and most of this is only expected to be finalized or formalized during the transition period. 
So the key dates that we're all looking towards, as you can see outlined in the green box, is on the 11th of December, when the UK Parliament is expected to vote on both the withdrawal agreement as well as the political declaration. Now, as we would all know, this could prove to be quite a tricky stage because there is criticism coming from the Prime Minister's own uh, Conservative Party as well as opposition parties. So it remains to be seen as to whether this vote would go through. So there are essentially two scenarios that could come out. There could be a yes vote or a no vote. So looking more closely at the no vote, this would obviously throw the UK into quite a bit of turmoil in the sense that the government would have 21 days to draw up a new plan as to what things could look like. And there are several scenarios that could unfold in terms that um, the UK could possibly uh, renegotiate uh, the terms of the deal with EU, or it could be a no-deal scenario that unfolds. And even based on live news feeds that we're receiving, we understand that if it's a no vote, the UK is expected to drastically step up its no deal planning. Similarly, there could possibly be a second referendum. And there's even a provision to, in fact, extend the UK-EU negotiations much beyond March of 2019, that is Brexit Day. But the EU has to agree to the same. And there could also be a no-confidence vote uh, or a leadership vote. So a whole lot of scenarios that could throw up and uh, a lot of risks and instability that persists. Uh, now, if uh, the vote does go through, uh, then an EU withdrawal bill could be introduced. This could be in the first time of voting or perhaps when it goes through on the second time. And following this, uh, the... European parliamentary ratification is required, and this is expected to take place sometime in Feb or March of 2019. And if all goes well, UK is set to leave the EU on March 29th of 2019, that's Brexit Day, and more importantly, a transition phase would set in from March 29th, 2019, right up till December 31st of 2020. So that's a 21-month period during which a transition phase uh, would take place. Moving on to the next slide. So we've analyzed the withdrawal agreement and explored some of this key um, aspects for the benefit of, of all those attending today. So with respect to the transition period, now this particular transition period, the terms of it were agreed back in March, and what's been finalized in the last two weeks is pretty much same and similar to what was finalized back in March. Apart from the fact that uh, there's an extension, a provision to now extend the transition. So it, could, it might not just be a 21-month transition period, should the UK and the EU agree, it could possibly be extended beyond this time, perhaps for, a, for an undecided time. Now, the EU has expressed interest of potentially increasing this to 2022, and Theresa May has, uh, has given indications of a shorter transition period. So there is a provision to extend this period, but if this is to be done, the decision has to be taken by mid of next year. Uh, now, with respect to the trade agreement per se, now, we've all uh, heard a lot of scenarios that have been discussed in the past couple of months, such as the Canada scenario and the Checker scenario. So, the type of trade agreement that is expected to be finally formalized 
post-transition. During the transition, things will stay as is in the sense that UK will still remain part of the EU single market and customs union, so no changes in trade con conditions. But after the transition period, that particular agreement or the nature of that particular deal is still to be finalized and most of these talks will take place during the transition period. It hasn't been finalized as yet. Now with respect to citizens' rights, again, a lot of it that was finalized is very similar to what was released back in March. And we understand that EU citizens can continue to move to the UK during the transition period and can continue to stay even after the transition period ends. And when they attain a five-year mark of living in the US, UK, sorry, they can apply for permanent residence or something known as a settled status. So this gives a lot more certainty with regards to the status of EU citizens. And we've in fact seen a drop in immigration to the UK in the past couple of months. But we expect that with this certainty, there could be a pickup in EU immigration to the UK during the transition period. Now moving on to the financial settlement amounts that the UK has to pay to the EU. The withdrawal agreement doesn't state a figure per se, but it's expected to be in the range of about 39 billion pounds that are expected to be paid over the next couple of years. Now, the criticism of the same is that uh, the question as to why the UK would have to pay into the EU budget without having worked out a trade agreement, with, with the still lingering risk that the trade agreement could be quite poor for the UK. So this is one of the criticisms that's been raised with regards to the financial settlement. And lastly, we have the North, Northern Ireland backstop or the Irish border backstop. So the UK has been working very hard to ensure that there is no hard border uh, coming up between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And what has been worked out as part of the withdrawal agreement is that the UK and EU would form part of a single customs territory. It would sort of be like a customs union, but Northern Ireland would be much more closely aligned with the EU when it comes to rules and regulations. And some level of checks are expected between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, uh, the reservations against this particular model, firstly, is that the uh, UK can't unilaterally decide to leave the backstop. Now, this particular backstop is sort of like an insurance policy, so to speak. So after the transition period ends on December 2020, should a trade deal not be in place by then, that's when this particular backstop would get activated. If, you know, technological solutions or other solutions to um, solve the Irish border problem haven't been figured out by then, this sort of backstop would come into place. So UK can't unilaterally leave the backstop. It has to have the consent of the EU as well, and this is one contention against this particular model. And another key one is the fact that it could potentially restrict the UK's ability to strike trade deals with the world. As we all know, one uh, potential benefit of leaving the Brexit that UK has constantly expressed is that it would be able to uh, strike trade deals with new trade partners. And even with respect to the question of whether it can 
there was recent news with regards to the U.S. questioning whether UK could actually engage in a trade deal with the U.S. Now, from what we understand, during the transition period, the UK can start negotiating trade deals, be it with the US or other countries outside of the EU. These trade deals can't come into force until it leaves the transition. Now, suppose it has to leave the transition and the Irish border hasn't been solved, then the backstop would come into force. And when the backstop comes into force, UK would be required to apply the EU's common ex external tariffs with all its trade partners. So essentially what happens is it can't sort of reduce or minimize tariffs for, let's say, the US or countries that it wants to engage in free trade with. So it's not that the UK cannot strike trade deals because the withdrawal agreement clearly specifies that the UK will have an independent trade policy. It's just that it could be delayed. The actual enforcement of the trade deal could be delayed uh, until the backstop uh, problem is resolved. So moving on to the next slide, just a quick assessment of uh, the transition period impact because this is the period that most that businesses will be entering for about 21 months starting March of 2019. We've already covered the point on citizens' rights. Now, moving on to single market and customs union, as uh, most of you would well know, the UK is expected to remain part of the EU single market and customs union during the transition uh, period. Quite simply put, this means that no new tariffs, no new customs checks between the UK and the EU during this transition period. So trade and supply chains wouldn't get affected during this period. And trade deals, which we've already discussed, the UK can start to engage in these deals, but not enforce them at the moment. So these particular factors are a plus for the UK. Now moving on to the more riskier factors, the Northern Ireland uh, agreement we've already discussed, and decision-making. This is a key point in the sense that the UK will remain part of the EU single market, but will not have any say with regards to EU decision-making on single market rules or any other EU decision-making processes. And this is seen as a downside in the sense that the UK would have to continue adhering to EU rules, continue to pay into the EU budget without any voice whatsoever with regards to the decision-making process State. So it would essentially become a rule taker and not a rule maker. Moving on to the next slide. So we've analyzed a couple of Brexit scenarios that are likely to unfold, the first and most important being the no deal scenario. So a quick summary of why this, what this scenario would entail and uh, why it would have a damaging impact on growth as we all know. So the most important, as you can see from the first bullet on the left, is that the no-deal scenario completely rules out a transition period. So if the parliament votes no, and if, let's say, in the next couple of weeks, a no-deal scenario pans out, then starting March 2019, 29th of 2019, there would be no transition phase whatever. UK would immediately crash out of the EU and EU's import tariffs would be exposed on the UK, and UK would have to come up with its own set of tariffs, and there would be a whole host of customs checks. 
and the Irish border problem would also come into play. So it's quite a problematic scenario, the no deal scenario. The next one that we've looked at um, is the CETA or the Canada type scenario. We see this as quite a likely scenario in the sense that this is the, the CETA type trade agreement is the agreement that the EU has finalized with Canada. So since this is something that's already in force with the non-EU country, it's something that the EU could potentially approve when it comes to the UK. Maybe not necessarily Canada or CETA as is, maybe a CETA plus version or a CETA merged with some other model, but some of these aspects. So what does CETA essentially entail? It's just important to remember that under CETA, trade in goods is quite frictionless. So industrial goods don't carry tariffs. But however, there are customs checks under a CETA type model. And customs checks is something that uh, businesses in the UK are quite wary of, especially those that rely on just-in-time manufacturing because the whole supply chain would be affected. And um, as you would all know, when we did our analysis a couple of months back and we've been routinely updating the same, there was also the much talked about the checker scenario uh, that was finalized uh, a couple of months back. But we don't necessarily see the scenario playing out too much right now, uh, firstly because the EU has rejected the same. And also the checkers type scenario called for free trade in goods but with a common rule book with the EU on goods. But as per the recent political declaration, it says that the UK and the EU would have separate, separate legal laws. So this aspect of common, a common rule book wouldn't be workable, which is why we don't see checkers as being too uh, likely an option right now. So just a quick summary, if the no-deal scenario were come to come into play, there would be no transition period. The trade agreement could be a CETA-type model or a completely novel model that the UK and EU come out. Uh, businesses would really have to wait until 2020 to see what this particular trade model would look like. Uh, now, with regards to the Brexit impact on the UK economy, we've analyzed uh, top-level factors such as economic growth, and uh, interest rates and immigration. So this particular slide analyzes uh, the UK's uh, projected growth tra trajectory. So this line that you see in red is uh, the expected growth in a no-deal scenario. As you can see, it's going pretty much into the negative territory. And uh, while growth is expected to slip, we don't expect the UK to be in a recession for more than two years. If you pull back data for about 20 to 30 years, at any time UK growth slipped into the negative territory, it recovered in about two years. Even if you look back to the 2008 financial crisis, it was just for two years, and the GDP growth figures were almost similar to these levels. Now, under CETA style D, we expect growth to slip because there would be customs checks and there would be some restraints, but obviously it wouldn't fall into the negative territory. But the growth trajectory based on the trade deal, it really depends on the terms of the trade deal that are worked out. For example, if it's complete frictionless trade in goods, 
goods, it would be much higher growth. Whereas if it's restricted and if there are customs checks, it would be much lesser growth. So it really depends on the terms of the trade deal that are worked out. Uh, with respect to monetary conditions in terms of what sort of business interest rates uh, companies could expect. Uh, so as we know, the Bank of England pursued a rate hike back in August of 2018, and rates have been held steady since. Uh, what we expect is that if all goes well and if a transition period is imposed and things are smooth, the interest rate will continue to tighten in 2019. We expect the rates only to be hiked after sometime closer to when UK leaves the EU. But if it's a no-deal scenario, rates are definitely expected to be cut similar to what happened closer to the time of, it, sorry, following the time of the referendum when interest rate cuts were pursued uh, to strengthen the economy. And the scale of cuts could be much higher here. So businesses could expect rate cuts under a no-deal scenario, but uh, continued monetary policy tightening that's been going on from about 2017, if all goes well and a transition period comes into play. And finally, with respect to migration, um, so this particular chart that you see here on your left, um, the brown line on the top is indicators of non-EU net migration, with the lighter blue line being indicative of EU net migration. And as you can see, right after the Brexit vote back in 2016, there was a sharp drop in EU net migration to the UK. And what we expect, you see two lines, uh, two, two trajectories for the lines. So the light blue line for a CETA-style scenario, there's expected to be an uptick in migration during the transition period because of the certainty of citizens' rights, and we expect UK employers to hire more EU citizens during this particular period because of the certainty. So there's going to be an uptick right up till 2020. Thereafter, your free movement is expected to end, so net migration would fall. Now, the extent of this fall is really quite dependent on the migration policy that's formulated by the government. Um, what we understand from the political declaration, for example, is that free movement will definitely end after the transition period with maybe uh, short travel without the requirements for visas. Now, it remains to be seen whether longer stays would be allowed without requirements for visas or whether there could be some special treatment for highly skilled EU workers. If so, obviously the drop in migration would be a lot lesser. And under the no-deal scenario, as you can see, if um, Parliament votes no and uh, the UK exit crashes out of the EU without a deal, migration is expected to continue to dip as it has been in the past couple of months, and this is expected to continue into over the foreseeable months. Um, with that, we've come to the end of uh, the economic analysis on Brexit, and I'd like to invite Kevin Kelly, who'd now shed some light on the Brexit impact on the automotive industry. Okay, thank you very much, Nia, for that um, introduction to Brexit and the economic impact. So I'd like to take us on to the automotive sector. 
um, which is one of the main um, industrial drivers in, in the UK and is very likely to be impacted regardless of the type of EU um, Brexit and negotiation policy. So let's get into this a little bit. So as um, Nias mentioned, there's a couple of scenarios that we at Frost have on the no deal scenario and this data scenario. And what I wanted to do here on this slide um, is show some key influencing factors on the automotive industry. So we have the certification challenge, the customs delay challenge, the rules on origins of parts and tariffs from non-EU countries, and the higher potential cost of trade with the EU. And these four potential factors or challenges to the automotive industry, we've analysed based on a no-deal scenario and a CETA scenario. And the big thing here is the no-deal um, scenario has huge implications to the automotive industry. Um, from a regulatory point of view, um, would the um, certification policy for EU manufactured vehicles allow export to Europe? So currently this has not been Confirmed. So at the moment, the VCA certificate in the UK would not be valid for exporting cars to the EU, which would add uh, additional cost and complexity to the manufacturing process. With the CETA scenario, this gives the OEMs, manufacturers and suppliers significantly more time due to the transition period to iron out these issues and understand from a regulatory perspective what will happen to VCA certification. Within the customs delay, um, for no deal, there would be significant changes to the customs uh, importation system, and there would be um, a longer delay for imports, uh, customs and uh, checks, um, with the no deal being a possibility from um, This is a very short period of time for OEMs to have this um, huge challenge put into their supply chain. From the CETA side, again, it's going back to this reflective process of more time for the OEM suppliers to put measures in place to implement after uh, December 2020. So uh, we also have the non-EU country tariff reduction. So at the moment, with approximately 25% of local content in the UK, um, it comes from the UK in its manufacturing process. And uh, this would have a big impact on the UK exports um, as they would not get preferential, this 75% uh, would not get preferential tariffs, so significantly increase the cost of the vehicles. With the CETA, there is no change to this impact from after December 2020, so it would only give the additional period in, in the transition period. There would also be significant possible tariffs um, implemented if we had a no deal. If we had a, a no deal, there would be significant tariffs onto the uh, the vehicles within Europe, and uh, this would have a huge impact to the costs. With the tariffs under CETA, industrial goods, as uh, Nea mentioned, they have a uh, reduction, um, but this would still have some cost implication. So if we move on to how do these challenges impact the sales volume within the UK? Oh, sorry, I'm just seeing there was some audio poor audio. So I apologise, I'm trying to speak up as much as I can, but apologies if you cannot hear. Um, so what we're doing here is we're looking at these, how all of these macro um, situations impact on the new car sales, uh, depending on the Brexit deal. So the green line here uh, is a forecast based on if Brexit did not happen, 
and you could see there would still be a continued growth of the total industry volume. Obviously, with the scenarios we have now, we are now in a, uh, in a CETA or soft Brexit type situation or a no deal situation. Both of these situations would cause decline in sales forecasts as consumers um, would be unsure of many situations, not just uh, vehicle purchasing, but also um, uh, financial or, as Nia said, um, other impacts. But we believe this recover could be recovered within a two to three year period. So we see this sharp decline in 2018 and 2019, but we see there could be a plateauing or recovery based on the situation post-2021. So we do see that the, the industry is able to recover in terms of new car sales. If we move on to seeing what this impact would have on production. So obviously the UK has many OEMs who manufacture um, components and vehicles in the UK. So not only sales is an influencing factor, but a significant amount of this is exported production. So what would be the impact on production? And we see here with this graph, there, this is the no Brexit scenario. Um, there is a significant reduction in um, vehicle production uh, within the UK. And this is seen within 2018 and 2019. And this is already starting to influence um, the decision making of OEMs. So we're starting to see announcements from the like of Jaguar Land Rover, who have started uh, doing part-time production, or, or BMW, who are stockpiling components to ensure manufacturing uh, continuity. And uh, along with this, the UK uh, automotive uh, industry has a huge amount of employees. So 186,000 approximately within uh, 2017, with approximately 10% of this number of people coming from EU countries, which would have a large influence on how OEMs can hire people in certain positions, not just in manufacturing, but also in engineering uh, and research and R&D, which will also be heavily impacted in terms of uh, employability. So the companies will not only have a tariff or production issue, a supply issue, but they also may have a staffing issue. And all of these influencing factors could increase manufacturing costs by approximately £2,500 per car for a UK car being exported to another market, to a European market. This would have a significant impact on the profitability and competitiveness of many companies. And we'll come on to some of the mitigating factors OEMs are introducing later. So if we look at the production, is not just one metric to be able to understand what's happening in the automotive industry. The other one is investment. So this investment has, is being dramatically impacted by Brexit, and we're seeing two disruptions in investment for automotive OEMs and suppliers. One is Brexit itself, the uncertainty, um, the continuity, and which level of tariffs is having huge reductions in the amount of investments they want to make to ensure they can maintain um, supply after Brexit. The second is digitization. So we see going back even 2015 to 2016, we see investment was on the decline. And this investment decline was due to the improvement in digitization of the industry, both in terms of R&D and manufacturing process. So this decline had started before Brexit, but as Brexit happened, or the announcements that the UK would leave the EU, um, this comes in 2016, 2017, and we've seen a sharp reduction. 
And if we go with this uh, no deal um, situation, no Brexit deal situation, we see a dramatic decline down to 400 uh, million um, from 1.1 billion in 2017. And as I say, this is twofold, not only Brexit, but also digitization. So we may see lots of suppliers or com companies and OEMs moving further into this digitization field. And we view this field as being approximately worth 74 billion by 2035. So this is a Brexit is driving more investment in this digital field. And the OEM industry or the automotive industry in the UK is not just manufacturers, not just um, the people who uh, build the components, the suppliers and the OEMs, but is also the service industry. And the service industry contributes 12.2 billion to the UK economy, so is also a significantly impacted version of this. And obviously this is very relevant to not only car park, number of cars in the car park, but also the number of car sales and how this has an impact on components and how it has an impact on customer behavior in terms of uh, purchasing and servicing and uh, how they change their customer behavior. So we see this currently employs approximately 345,000 employees within this sector. And this will also be impacted um, as we go forward in Brexit. So we see each of the, the automotive value chain being impacted by a, uh, a Brexit deal. Whether this is no Brexit or CETA, there will be impacts not only in tariffs, but in time for the components to come. So if we think of a scenario where a customer has had a faulty component on their car, where will this component come from? What will happen within that dealership? How do they order? What tariffs will be on these service components, not just production components? And how does this influence the whole, not only value chain, but customer experience of a vehicle? And I would like to come on to the next bit here is the, the, the real numbers behind this um, behind this aftermarket uh, situation. So we see significant increase in parts pricing and also a lack of clarity um, from the parts suppliers on how many parts are available, when those parts are available and how fast to get those. So we'll see this coming in the consumer impact where we view there could be a decrease of 11% in customer spending on car maintenance. We also see this being influenced on the terms of how long customers keep their cars and the higher pricing that people pay for servicing parts component, both in aftermarket and direct from the OEMs. And this could possibly lead to a 30% um, reduction in investment in the aftermarket system and up to 35,000 reduction in, in employment in the aftermarket sector itself. And a little bit earlier on, I mentioned um, we talked about OEM mitigating factors, and this is one point I wanted to go over quite extensively today. So we have here three uh, key or European uh, key OEMs in the UK automotive uh, manufacturing. So we have BMW, who um, manufacture Mini in Oxford plant, approximately 218,000 vehicles, and the key thing for this is 80% of these are exported. This is similar statistic for Jaguar Land Rover and Honda, who all export a significant number of their cars. So this will lead to these OEMs having to have a huge priority in understanding the Brexit deal, the impact to them, and also planning for the possibility of a no Brexit deal. Obviously, Nea mentioned earlier on, 
In the last couple of weeks, in the last few days, we have had significant movement on understanding the type of Brexit deal we will have. But this does, this still does not remove the uncertainty of a no Brexit deal, which all OEMs are currently using as their benchmark to understand how do they continue production, how do they supply parts outside, and how do they supply fully fitted vehicles out to Europe, and what will be the impact on their business. So if we look at some of the post-Brexit strategies, so if we start with BMW, there's a pos good strong possibility from, from them that they could shift dramatically to EVs within their mini brand, which they have already announced some shift towards this way, in the look for trying to get both incentives from the UK government, who are trying to establish the UK as a manufacturing um, expertise for EV vehicles, but also try and get some EU grants or reduce tariffs on EV vehicles because of the CAFE compliance regulations within the EU. They could also shift production parts or even full vehicles from other regions such as the USA or Canada or non other, other non-EU countries in terms of trying to reduce the impact on their supply chain. From Jaguar Land Rover, they have a slightly different tactic where they have a possible European um, manufacturing location in Slovakia, which has just recently opened for their discovery brand, but it has significant capacity to be increased. And they also have looked at developing partnerships to reduce their reliance on imported components. This was a pre-Brexit discussions with uh, Magna um, Investments, but we could see this type of partnership and this type of relationship dramatically increasing in a post-EU-UK situation. Within Honda, Honda is a very different situation again because they have a very low manufacturing facility in the UK in terms of volume, so 122,000 units, which is a little fifth near enough of the Jaguar Land Rover figures. So this is Honda's only European plant, but they couldn't relocate this due to expensive costs, but they could import from markets such as Canada, where they have production of two core models in the Civic and CRV, and shift their UK manufacturing volume to being their UK sales volume. So trying to significantly increase the number of cars they manufacture and sell within the UK, and for EU models, maybe shift this manufacturing to another market such as Canada. So we see here with these three examples, there's three distinct different ways and there is other OEMs such as GM or PSA, apologies, the PSA who have the plant in, uh, near Liverpool and in Luton, of how these different OEMs are doing different strategies to shift the, um, to mitigate the risks of uh, a Brexit scenario, particularly a no deal scenario. So we see here at the bottom the influence of import tax on different OEMs. So with the EU, manufactured components to the UK, this has a huge impact on companies like Ford, Volkswagen, uh, BMW, Mercedes-Benz and Audi, premium OEMs, who are manufacturing Europe and trying to sell significant volumes in the UK. So there is also their aspect of how do they understand the Brexit deal. And from the UK to the EU, as we mentioned, we have the three key ones there, BMW, GLR and Honda, but also Nissan and Toyota. How do they shift their volumes or move sales volumes from the UK to the EU? So each OEM is influenced in a different way and has different mitigating factors. 
but the key themes we're trying to see here is they will go outside the EU predominantly to try and get their components. And they will look at ways of trying to shift some of the EU volume to other locations as well. So this brings me to the end of my presentation on automotive. I hope this has been a good glimpse into the impacts of the automotive industry and how some OEMs are able to shift. And apologies if my uh, audio has not been great. I'd like to pass over to Luca now to go through the financial services. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon. My name is Luca Raffellini. I'm the head of financial services of Frost & Sullivan. Uh, I hope you can hear you ma me well. Uh, the, the next 10, 12 minutes, we're going to talk about uh, uh, financial services. Um, I should point out straight away that we are not going to cover specifically the whole financial system of the UK, um, although this is very important, particularly after the, the publication of the Bank of England um, stress test and the financial stability report. So uh, questions on um, the broader financial stability are very welcome. We'll try to answer those uh, as long as we recognize that the, these slides are really focused on financial services. Um, the situation for a very large complex industry like financials is in fact very simple. Um, the uh, withdrawal agreement, the 587 pages, um, are, are really made up of a very large part, the protocol, and a statement of intent for the future. Um, the protocol um, says uh, absolutely nothing about financial services. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, the most important part of the protocol side, which really deals with the, the next uh, couple of years, um, is the distinction that you see on this page. So uh, the only really important distinction for financial services is uh, uh, whether there is no deal or uh, we do in fact progress with the uh, current withdrawal agreement. Uh, in the first case, um, all existing contractual arrangements with um, European countries and uh, service financial players and consumers will come to an end. Um, that includes, of course, the loss of passport rights. Um, in reality, there has been an informal agreement between the European Union and uh, um, the Treasury in the UK that uh, existing contractual arrangement, arrangements will be honored uh, until the natural um, life of the content themselves. But, uh, uh, leaving aside that these have not been enshrined in law yet, it is clearly a, a very minimal guarantee. Um, if there is indeed an agreement uh, of the CETA, CETA plus variety, uh, then uh, uh, the interesting part is the first 20, 21 months. Uh, in the first 25 months, um, in reality, uh, nothing changes. The um, passport rights are retained, and so are the contracts. So uh, UK and uh, European uh, service providers, financial service providers, will be able to trade as they have in the past. Um, uh, as for the future, um, again, the, the future is only a declaration of intent of six pages in the withdrawal agreement. And uh, 
um, mention specifically financial services only in regard to the so-called equivalence regime. If we move to the next page, um, let's say a, a, a couple of things on what passporting and equivalence are. Um, equivalence may suggest a, a fairly nice symmetrical uh, balanced relationship. Uh, in reality, equivalence is, is everything but. Um, equivalence is an existing contractual instrument that the European Union applies to third parties, to any countries that want to deal with uh, uh, the European Union on a um, financial service trading basis, um, can be granted equivalence. So equivalence is granted to a country by the European Union and can be withdrawn very quickly within, uh, within 30 days. Um, it's also quite narrow in scope, so it needs to be granted for a particular uh, segment of the financial services industries that typically exclude interesting ones like uh, deposit or current accounts. Um, Currently, we, we are at the opposite end of the scale. We have a, a passporting rights agreement, uh, which means that at the moment um, any financial service player can uh, uh, register in its own country uh, and have a passport. So um, this is not a country-to-country -country agreement. It is a firm-to-country agreement, uh, and that covers a, a large variety of financial services. And, of course, uh, it is a right. Um, it is a right that arises from uh, a firm being able to trade uh, within the European Union. Um, the uh, mutual regulatory recognition is also an existing contractual instrument, but is, is not being used um, extensively, or indeed at all, by the European Union. Um, it's presently in, in, uh, in force, for instance, between Canada and the U.S., is limited in scope and only academic in interest because it's, it's already been essentially ruled out by both the UK and uh, the European Union. Uh, as for the enhanced equivalence, um, that is, of course, possible, although it's not specifically mentioned in the withdrawal agreement. Um, if we move to the next page, um, uh, what we try to do here very briefly, because the financial services industry is so large, is to take um, four uh, very, very short um, case studies in, in four different areas of uh, um, the financial industry. Um, we have not tackled the, the big one, the one that has been talked about extensively, which is uh, uh, clearing. Um, derivative clearing accounts for 60 billion euro of business and has been at the center of most negotiation on financial services. It's obviously very important. All we can say is that uh, at the moment there is a strong declaration of intent on both sides to have clearing continued, but no firm agreement in this sense. Uh, if we look at four individual cases, um, the, the general picture is that, as, as in many situations, there are, there are winners and losers. In this case, it, it would seem that as, as far as financial services fares is concerned, there are probably more losers than winners. If we look, for instance, 
um, at investment banks and some of the key activity on uh, proprietary trading and underwriting. Um, that um, will essentially require and for them to, to set up subsidiaries in uh, EU countries in which they want to trade. Uh, that in itself is not a problem. Most of them already have subsidiaries, particularly large investment banks in other countries. Um, there is, however, one, uh, one span in words, which is the, um, the European Banking Authority, which ironically used to be in London, uh, has um, recently passed into legislation a ruling that um, they will need to um, decide on capital requirements. This may sound quite obscure, but essentially what it says is that um, if you are an investment bank currently housed in the UK, you cannot just open a, a postal address, a little office in Frankfurt. You need, um, and if you're trading 5 billion euro of derivatives from Frankfurt, you need to have the infrastructure, people, and capital requirement to back it up. So in essence, that implies a very heavy flow of capital and people to other European countries. So asset managers is a, is a similar situation. We've focused here on alternative investment, alternative assets like hedge funds and real estate. Uh, for, for them, the, uh, the fundamental point is the, the jurisdiction uh, issue. Again, very similar situation. Currently, uh, most of these funds work on the delegation principle, whereby uh, providing that you are um, addressed, you're housed in one of the European countries, you can uh, um, invest in all the others. Um, that will need to be verified um, based on those capital requirements. So for both investment banks and asset managers in general, uh, is, is not good news. If we look at uh, private equity, um, that's a, a much more um, interesting and exciting situation because it really depends on what uh, the risk profile of your portfolio and your investment strategy is. Arguably, and it has been argued by certainly many of our clients, um, this is a, a situation that may present opportunities. Is the you know the building on fire concept, the idea that uh, um, that when there is a potentially distressed or unusual situation, uh, and the risk profile isn't clear, people they are able to move quickly. They have availability of fund and uh, uh, perhaps the, the agility to to invest uh, may really see some good opportunities. Certainly, that would solve the problem which is, uh, which is really besetting the private equity industry, which is not so much a, a custom arrangement, but is dry powder and, uh, um, and multiples. So to the extent that uh, that can be solved by some exceptionally good deal coming, um, coming online, that could in fact be an opportunity, particularly for those private equity firms that are perhaps more focused on carved out, distressed, or uh, even non-lending, um, so even non-equity um, situation like uh, mezzanine, etc. Finally, for, for fintech, uh, situation is very simple. Uh, fintech is, is, a, is an up-and-coming high-growth industry, very diversified. But if we look at the mainstay of fintech, which is rigid, uh, really digital payment, the second generation startups, 
Um, there is no particular hardware reason why they should move, but um, the reality is that uh, if you look at the, the key success factors, uh, one of the key success factors here is the, uh, the critical access to human capital. And to the extent that uh, London may become a less interesting, dare I say, less cool destination, and um, that we would almost certainly see a migration of some of these second-generation startups to, um, to other hubs like Berlin or Amsterdam or even, dare I say, Milan, which may be perceived as uh, more interesting or uh, cooler. Um, this concludes the, the final um, service section. As I said, uh, questions on these or the broader financial stability and stress test are welcome as well. Uh, with that said, I uh, pass the floor to the next speaker, Sujit. Hi. Uh, good afternoon and good evening and good morning to people in different parts of the world. And thank you so much, Luca, for the wonderful presentation. My name is Sujit. I'm the Director for Consulting for Healthcare for Austin Sullivan's ER in Israel practice. And today we're going to talk about what's the impact of Brexit on the healthcare market. Traditionally, healthcare as an industry has been recession-proof uh, with minor impacts on uh, mostly around trade deals and uh, associated taxes like in the United States and other parts of the world. Healthcare in, uh, in UK is, I would say, the center point, and as uh, David Cameron once said, as the crown jewel of the, uh, the, of the British market. That has, uh, you know, accounts for almost, you know, in terms of uh, 60 billion plus revenues, exports of over 30 billion. And to give you a context on how, what could be the impact or what could be, what does it mean for the UK and the industries uh, in uh, healthcare industries within the market, it employs almost 220,000 plus people, of which uh, I would say uh, this is only in the life sciences side. I'm not accounting people in NHS, uh, of which almost... 7% are only non-British. Uh, and almost what I would account for is 10% of the GDP budget is spent on the NHS. Now, what is interesting to note is that um, just pharma manufacturing in the United Kingdom uh, will account for almost 230 billion, uh, 30 billion odd to the gross value-add uh, figures. And this this is a huge figure when when we talk about the overall European market where UK stands out just in just on the manufacturing scale uh, for pharma products. And in addition to that, is the UK market accounted for almost the highest FDI coming from both um, in among European countries, which is uh, when you compare that to the rest of the European countries, maybe Germany and France, fairly little bit. But investments flowing in from the U.S., from China, from India, from other parts of the world, um, uh, especially the APAC region, especially the Japanese markets, um, is huge in terms of foreign direct investment in the healthcare sector. This combined by you know the fact that UK is a massive R&D hub. Now, when we talking about R&D, one UK has a huge. Uh, you, um, research and R&D wing, which accounts almost 20% of the funding. This is huge when you compare it to global figures of global majors, um, uh, which who are uh, spending only about 8 to 9% of their annual revenues on 
uh, R&D. And when you consider 20% of UK is has a 20% funding, it's a lot to say. Now, when let's let's move to the key factors. What you know, there is also UK is a critical market when uh, they call as as a part of the industry, where um, specialty drugs are either developed is a uh, is a major fluctuating point where NICE, the UK authority, is one of the most uh, well known established health technology assessment sectors and has a great influence on the global market. NICE alone has uh, does technology appraisals worth $325 billion of pricing for the global pharma market. So what we see in the next, uh, what was expected that the UK market to grow on, on both life sciences and healthcare industries to grow about between the range of 5 to 10, 5 to 8% in the next coming years, Yes, Brexit will have an impact on that. It will slow down. There is no doubt about it. Uh, and there will be a little bit of pressure, but this is expected to pick up on multiple levels in the coming days. Now, when what would be the impact on multiple levels? There is an uh, across the... While I've said the, what it means is what are the numbers, uh, the landscape of the UK market, there is a critical element here. There is... Um, Almost 45 million of, say, uh, packs of drugs are sold or exported by the UK. Uh, at the same time, about 37 million are imported as well. Now, it could be that there will be significant amount of delays, uh, depending on the type of deal that uh, um, the Parliament approves or does not approve, uh, where there could be delays in supply of drugs which are entering into the market. There could be delays which will impact, uh, you know, um, the drugs going out. So especially, for example, insulin, um, the government has indicated to NHS to create sufficient supply uh, and create enough backup quantities of uh, insulin for the market because it's a huge diabetes market. Uh, there could be a rise, considering that if we have a Canada-style CETA type of deal, um, it could mean duty-free and everything is fine and uh, it could be all hunky dory uh, to the um, or you may lose access to some of the free trade agreements which you know you only has with some of these markets including Israel and Korea and other parts of the world so that's that's one aspect of the impact there could be impact on supply chain and uh, where manif being again as I said if it if UK accounts for 213 billion of the Manufacturing and gross value add, it could face increasing lead times, customs checks, um, uh, impact on supply chain, impact on QAQC checks, batch testing, um, uh, as companies would would be forced to then hold sufficient amount of stock during the transition period, as Neha had indicated earlier in the part of her discussion as well. And that transition period and what that will entail is something which uh, I think if the current deal is there in place. If approved, we think that this would be fairly straightforward. If not, there will be these custom sticks that are in place for the UK market. Now, other aspect is the regulatory aspect, uh, which is also a critical element. Now, historically, UK has been a critical player in devising the um, uh, regulatory approvals and the FDA actually, uh, funnily enough, stated that you know um, the new European um, Pharma Clinical Trials Directive 
is like a gift to uh, the United States because they're going to follow that to the T. And newer regulations are going to come in place with regard, effective to 2018 from the new EU directive. Now, what, what does that mean as a part of that is that European Medicine Agency also sits in um, in the London uh, United Kingdom, and it will have one aspect about what will have an impact is going to Amsterdam. Now, Theresa May, in one of her statements, did make that UK could have an associate partnership with the um, European Medicines Agency. But what is also critical to note that in the past, MHRA, first MHRA being there, used to have a critical influence on the um, on the European Medicines Agency. MHRA accounted for almost 30% of the testing being done uh, by by, um, by European Medicines Agency, but that has changed ever since the um, the vote for exiting the European Union happened. Uh, apparently, last year, only about two particular deals have gone to MHRA for testing activities as well. So that's it's, it says a lot that if they move to uh, Amsterdam, UK will not have the same level of influence that uh, uh, on European directives in the future. But if we become an associate, it would be much more straightforward and simpler processes for uh, the unlike pharma companies would not have twin approvals, both for UK and the EU separately. And this this would have a lower impact in total as such. Moving on to the other aspect is, of course, um, the supply chain aspect, uh, which we've already discussed, and additionally, the patent. Patent is a very important um, uh, aspect within the UK-EU uh, conundrum, where overalling the, the, I think the last couple of years, there has been a serious overall of the patent regime in EU. Uh, there should be a pan-EU unitary patent uh, covering um, deal which was in place. Uh, this is not going to impact e UK's exit as much. Uh, I, I doubt it, and as an organization, we do doubt it, as a unified patent court agreement might be adopted by the UK as an associate uh, of the EU, if depending on the CETA deal that has been uh, going, but however, there has been an um, urge among the industries that you know how they should be dealing with patent production. There is supplementary production certificates which have also been placed for, especially for patents for medicinal and uh, plant-based products, uh, which have obtained authorizations in the EU as well. So this would also mean a significant amount of impact in the future. Now, moving on to the next element is uh, um, what would uh, this, but what is interesting is that the last couple of years, uh, especially ever since the Brexit uh, deal has gone through, what has also impacted is that certain local organizations like um, GSK, Workshop and Dome have, have also started to heavily invest in the UK market. GSK has uh, committed almost 275 million on a couple of new manufacturing sites. AstraZeneca has also pumped in almost 330 million in the new R&D centers. Similarly, Merck Shop and Dome has a new partnership with uh, Manchester Innovation Council, and Kaijin has also started to heavily invest in the UK market. So it's despite knowing there are, there is a positive. Um, um, 
you know, approach to the UK healthcare industry and the life sciences industry by, uh, you know, some of these global tier one players, which is still to indicate that the market will be continue to be a positive space for investment in the future. Uh, the other aspect is the brain drain, which is uh, potentially likely to happen. Now, when I say brain drain, it is not just in the healthcare and life sciences aspect. It's both in the services side as well as on the manufacturing and R&D elements. Now, what is interesting to note that in every uh, research, be it European research or UK-driven research, there's uh, if there are three people in the research uh, element, there will be at least one UK partner or more, or similarly for EU side of the business, where there is a research paper for there's at least one UK partner. Now, what will ha- what we think is uh, based on if there is a CETA type of deal, what will happen is most of these research will get impacted, especially um, research funding flowing in from the EU. EU accounted for uh, UK accounted for almost eight point eight billion of the research happening. Uh, funds coming from European Union, but there has been a uh, similar, uh, you know, amount uh, um, which has flown out of the UK as well. So that could be a huge impact on the R&D funding coming through. But at the same time, also, the, uh, if the new visa regulations are impacted, it could also mean employing people from the uh, European Union would be a challenge. But we think that as a part of the new year um, uh, visa regulations, there would be either short-term contracts would be in place, short-term visas would enable some of these uh, um, R&D folks to work in the UK, or there could be specialized visas which are in place, which has very limited impact on that research. At the same time, NHS um, has, will face a severe staffing shortage. Uh, what is interesting to note that as of, um, uh, say, 2017, um, Almost 130,000 jobs vacant, uh, 133,000 jobs are vacant in the NHS. And this is a critical uh, shortage. And what does that shortage of staff mean? Uh, Nurse shortage just alone has an impact of almost 2.4 billion uh, pounds on the NHS because that means uh, agency contracts, uh, free, um, you know, short-term contracts with nurses from other, et cetera, would have to be in place. Now, it also has an impact on manufacturing industry. It has an impact on um, sales and marketing staff within pharma and life sciences industry as well, and especially also a huge impact on the elderly care market in the United Kingdom. So I've just, I think this particular slide, I just wanted to set the scene for what we're talking about. I'd like to move on to the uh, next slide, which is now looking in and focusing on some of the so what's and what are the impacts on depending on the type of deal. Um, one, say, um, is the workforce. Now, EU staff recruitment and retention. Now, what we see, if we see that if the current agreement allows the um, uh, existing European staff to continue working without, and there's not going to be a much of an impact, but there is going to be a much more skills assessment and the impact when on a CETA type of deal is going to be positive and it will continue to work. But it will also mean that um, there might be a a better visa system for skilled labor from other parts of the world, which is right now UK market or UK uh, 
border agency is quite restricted from non for non EU workers. That might open up floodgates from you know researchers and uh, people from other parts of the world, including China and Korea, which could also mean uh, that the staff shortages could be fulfilled by that. Now, in the past, financing, especially um, of healthcare, uh, from a services standpoint. Um, there, there was free movement and obtaining healthcare from other parts of the European Union for UK citizens and vice versa was free movement. But depending on the upcoming deal, it could be that um, UK could either adopt a European insurance system where there could be vice versa contracts in place. That's a potential um, uh, opportunity for the NHS to possibly uh, gather some um, funds as well for uh, treating. Uh, European citizens, uh, but that's still again depending on the deal. But a CETA type of deal will have a very limited impact on that as well. Market approval, as I discussed before, uh, again, um, so, so it, access to um, if we are following becoming an associate member of the European Medicines Agency, it could be it will have a very limited impact depending on the CETA type of deal. Uh, service delivery, I think the biggest impact is, will be on the social care sector, as I mentioned, uh, elderly care, because uh, there has been exodus in the last couple of day, years. And this will be one critical area where uh, the recruit, either staffing it up and building staff in the next um, um, couple of uh, years towards the post-transition period will become a key priority for the um, um, UK, both the uh, social care sector um, and managing agencies accordingly. Um, of course, um, if I can move on to the next slide, um, there is also, you know, in order to employ, there is a need for recognition of professional qualifications. UK is one country which is particularly um, uh, strict on um, recognizing professionals from other parts of the world. So if there is a need to um, uh, fulfill the skills shortage at the same time deliver policy care, they have to tighten up the regulations with regards to um, you know, the qualifications. Uh, as, again, market authorization, I know that a lot of pharma companies are preparing for individual UK market authorization and the EU market authorization. But if being an associate member, um, uh, could be a possibility that that could be made easier. However, what we also predict is that, like the FDA is creating an accelerated review, UK M MHRA would create an accelerated review process and new and innovative drugs and tools can easily access the UK market. So if there are innovative tools and drugs coming from China to South Korea, that also remains, uh, would have an opportunity in the UK market as well in the future. Uh, finished products, and uh, it could be mean that uh, if there is a free trade agreement like CETA, it could also mean that um, there it's, it's still the same. However, if the in the event of the UK falling under the WTA pharmaceutical agreement, that could be uh, um, no duty for the finished products. However, for manufacturing, it could be in fact as uh, importing of some APIs and others associated ingredients could mean a bigger impact. Now, what is also interesting is that the UK reference network uh, uh, will also bring together highly specialized centers um, for treatment areas, especially in the area of oncology and neurological dis disorders. And UK already has 33 hospitals participating in 22 of the 24 of those networks. Um, 
in the past uk you had a strong regulatory structure designed to prevent states from um, um, you know implementing policies which are uh, which are you know anti competition um it is an opportunity for the nhs to break free from the eu legislation and to promote competition as well as an as a part of the impact uh i'll move on to the next slide um where we are also just referring to the life sciences industry it's quite similar to the in terms of the impact as i said i've um, i've highlighted in the uh, past before as well is that yes um, there will be um, um, impact on research r&d and other stuff but if there is um, for especially for eu staff members if there is a, a much more unique visa system or free uh, free working agreements which are in place this does uh, have very limited impact in the future yes there will be a huge impact on european funding as i said before almost 8.8 billion will be uh, will not come in through but uk will still be an attractive market for venture capitalists and other forms of funding as well so minimal uh, minimum impact in during the transition period in the first 2 3 years but i think after that we are expecting the spot financing to pick up for both for across r&d etc manufacturing again subject to the trade agreement if there is a ceta type there is no customs fee for finished products and um, medicinal quality if you following the ema that will remain the same however in terms of if there is no deal brexit and the parliament doesn't pass the current deal that would have a huge impact on the manufacturing and supply chain as indicated before i think um in the coming years there will be a minor impact on the r&d funding if i move on to the next slide where um, you know uh, uk um, funding from eu will be reduced but as as highlighted before some of the big majors are continuing to invest in the uk market and areas of r&d so there will be a moderate impact for the immediate time however um, in the next coming uh, years it is bound to pick up investments will continue to grow uh, as uh, indicated in the slide where you know like some of shop and dome and kaijen etc are investing in in the uk market uh it is also an opportunity uh, for branded uh, generics in the eu um, uh, market as well where you know generics from the EE, uh, from other parts of the world will also have uh, a greater impact unless we are following uh, eu style model where that have limited access so with that i would like to conclude uh, my presentation and pass this um, um, floor to anna but however i would like to be, be glad to take up any questions coming from the audience as well thank you very much sujit and uh, due to our time we have about less than a minute left i see that there's many questions so the team will take that offline and answer uh, your questions And for those that have joined us late, uh, the on-demand recording will be available shortly after we finish. You can listen to the in- entire uh, presentation. We want to thank Neha, Kevin, Luca, and again Sujit for um, their presentations. And uh, we also invite you to uh, provide any feedback under the rate this tab. Any feedback, comments, or suggestions? You can also follow us on our social media sites. uh Facebook and LinkedIn to keep up to date on upcoming Gill events and also webinars and and press releases and reports. So this is going to conclude today's webinar. Um if you do again have any um 
interest in engaging in our growth strategy dialogue with one of our experts or learning more about Frost and Sullivan Research, you can please contact Vignish and uh, his details are listed on your screen at this time. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day.